everyone, welcome back to the fanfiction tapes. Today is episode 15, Exposition. I'm your host today, Maya, and I am joined by... Hi, it's me, Dylan, co-host extraordinaire. Uh, hello, I'm Steamed. And I'm our producer, Ian. Alright, to start off today's episode, what even is Exposition? If you're not familiar with the, oh god, his name escapes me, the Vonnegut plot triangle, you may not necessarily know this. And if you didn't take a lot of writing classes in college, you may not have ran into it. Exposition is kind of the term for what usually happens at the start of the story, where you are introduced to the setting, the characters, what's going on around them. That's plain and simple it. And in the Vonnegut map, it's represented as this flat line. Because um, on the Vonnegut pointy triangle map, the height represents how exciting or interesting what what's currently going on is. And exposition is somewhat well-known for being a little boring sometimes. Which brings us to the, um, one of the first things we want to talk about today on the episode is managing the balance between, okay, you have this cool world, you like it, you love it, how do you communicate information about it to your readers without, well, making them want to go read something else? So... I'll uh, get us on the tracks and inevitably bring us back off them. Um, <laughs> so when we talk about balancing game, I think it's all about how you present it. So a general rule is you don't tell characters information they already know. Never have them say, well, you know this, but I'm going to explain it to you anyway. That's, that's, uh, that's a no-no. Uh, it can be done, but... You don't want to do it, though. You'd rather have the character not understand and the character has to be explained. The character is learning alongside the reader or the character already knows it and can reply back. You don't want someone just to tell information to someone who already knows it. You'd rather the your character cut them off and explain it if you're turning it in sort of a more third-person kind of way. If it's from the third person, usually you just use inner thoughts as you're constantly in the person's head anyway <laughs> but yeah and I think the Valsing game is also trying to make it entertaining maybe drip feed it rather than big lore dumps you know I think occasional lore dumps are good but you don't want to be dumping all the lore at once on someone you know it might overwhelm them and stuff so it's good to like slowly introduce the old elements and what those elements mean where they came from so on and so forth. I think that's a good structural way to do it as opposed to... Okay, the first chapter's all in a history class. I'm going to drop all the relevant history that they need to know for this narrative right at the start. Like, whoo boy. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely something that's important with exposition is managing the flow rate. <laughs> You don't want to give them too much too quickly because 
people are here to read a book, not a textbook. I also feel like it's good to have questions that need to be asked and answered. So sometimes someone might be thinking, okay, but what about this aspect? What is it? And eventually they do get the explanation and it feels rewarding to read it and going, oh, that's what that is. Okay, cool. You know, it, it's good to give the information when they want it. You don't want to be feeding them information when they don't want it. And you want, and also try to make that relevant information. Yeah, I, it's cool to dump in all your extra world building, yes. But save that for, you know, companion books. Save that for, you know, <laughs> the world of book. Don't, don't put it in your main narrative all the time. Yeah, try to stick to relevant stuff. Yeah, if it's not relevant to the plot or the characters, your readers aren't going to care. Well, okay, some of them might, but most of your readers aren't going to be drawn in by information that doesn't have bearing on the plot. Um, I think someone who kind of notably wasn't always great about this is Tolkien. The uh, the the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I think, is something that occasionally gets brought up as a case where people actually say that the movies are better than the books. Um, sad to say, I'm actually kind of one of them. As as much as I enjoy the books, I do think that the movies do it better, and I think part of that is in managing the exposition. Yeah, for Tolkien created a great world, a great history, they had great characters, and delivered a good story. It's just, God, do you need to talk about everything? You know, as uh, George R. R. Martin said in the Epic Rap Bells of History, we don't need the backstory on every fucking tree branch. <laughs> Have you ever tried tried to read the Silmarillion? Oh god! <laughs> yes, I have. It's one, it's one of the few, very few books where I have started it and never finished it. It's like Same. maybe five books on that list. And yeah, Tolkien gets dry at times, and if you, if you want to know, hey, don't do this. Silmarillion is an excellent example of generally what you should avoid doing. <laughs> In terms of world building, it, Tolkien is a really strong writer, but not every writer is going to be strong everywhere. Exactly. Uh, speaking of Silmarillion, obviously, um, I don't mess around with that stuff a lot, but I do, I obviously read Fire and Blood, which is in sort of a half-similar vein sort of thing. And Fire and Blood is uh, an anthology book describing Targaryen history throughout Westeros in the Song of Ice and Fire series. And it's some of the most, first off, it's a history book told via, like, sources. And it's just, you know, it's fine, it's content, but please, George, I'd rather have the books. <laughs> you know, give me wins. <laughs> you know, and uh, I feel like authors sometimes, you know, they get, uh, this is what I want to say, I want to say about this, but sometimes you just need to write the characters, you need to write the things that people actually care about, 
It's cool you've got all this information and background and everything, but your main narrative is still the most important thing. And that's what you also have to remember. And I myself have found at times, oh, building this world is so much fun. And, you know, I get to make all the new characters with no weight and no no problems. I don't have to worry about anything else. It's like, you're avoiding what you actually have to work on. You're procrastinating the world. And that's what you're doing. And when you deliver, so don't try to over deliver the information or create more exposition to be exposited on. <laughs> uh, that would be some advice I would give. Now, there are a few cases where this could get a little tricky because if you're telling your story in maybe a high fantasy world or a sci fi universe, things are going to be a little different because the Operating rule, well, different compared to, say, telling a story that's set in a roughly modern day, you know. The wide variety of urban fantasy books, for example, a lot of the operating world rules of those worlds, the reader is already familiar with. But when you're doing high fantasy or sci-fi in the far reaches of the galaxy the operating rules your readers are less likely to be familiar with aside from general genre savviness so I wanted to bring up something that was mentioned what do you do when you have a piece of information that inarguably all of the characters should know but your readers shouldn't, and you need them to. One way you can do this is by introducing another character who doesn't know. Um, I think this is, this is notably the reason that Jean exists at all in Ruby. <laughs> that is exactly who I was thinking of when I posed this question. Yeah, you need the audience surrogate is usually the answer. You know, uh... The outsider, whoever, someone who doesn't know. Um, typically, younger people are very good for this, just, you know, they're inexperienced, you know. So that's, uh, those are the people you really want to use. And, yeah, pretty much. Make sure they're young, dumb, and know nothing about your world. <laughs> Although, as seen with Jean, sometimes this can have unintended side effects. One of the risks sometimes in having an audience surrogate, especially for information that is super, super core to your world, is your audience is then going to question, why on earth are they here? Because sometimes this information is something that character would need to already know to even be in this situation. That's actually kind of brings me to something that would be interesting, is using a... Rather than a young person for an audience surrogate, using a much older person whose experience with these things was long before the way they worked to, uh, in the present day. Back in my day. <laughs> so they need to relearn how the world works, right? Like how older people are less familiar with modern technologies. Sorry, mom and dad, that's you too. I can't really think of any examples of having that been done, but I think that would be interesting. 
and could also get you around that. Why are they even here? Well, they've had other experience. They're just, you know, behind the times. A- another way to do it is to have your story be an isekai. So <laughs> the protagonist learns everything as you do. <laughs> I mean, you can do that, yeah. <laughs> I am right. <laughs> I mean, I think that's just another case of having an audience surrogate character. It's just, in that case, the audience surrogate is the protagonist. Yeah, but it's some. It's usually, Anitsukai is usually someone who has an understanding of a world, just not the world they're in. So, it's more about making comparisons. So that's the difference when you have an audience surrogate who might not be aware of how but has some awareness of how their world works but no specific things whereas you can introduce the entire world through an isekai you know that's sort of the difference if you think about it like if someone was to come to earth and had like complete they came from like a high fantasy world they would understand certain things they would understand the concept of wealth probably they would understand Travel, stuff, certain, like, simple aspects, food. But would they understand, you know... Cell phones. Yeah, or certain education systems, certain forms of government. You know, that's what we would have to look at. Travel, planes, you know, stuff like that. You know, modern stuff. Uh, And that would be the introduction, then, is through... Okay, I understand how this works, but this is really interesting how they do this differently. Or how I don't have this. That actually brings up that that puts it in an interesting perspective that uh, makes it easy for me to bring up something I definitely wanted to talk about this episode. Uh, is kind of the analogy of the internal combustion engine and radio tower. Not everyone knows how internal combustion engines and how radio communications work. And so not everyone in your world, potentially even the perspective characters or really anyone in your main cast is going to know the exact rules behind some of your magic or sci-fi that affects the mechanics of the setting. I think a good example of this, (laughs) because we're all very normal here, uh, is the Locked Tomb series. It was originally going to say trilogy there, but it's not been a trilogy for some time now. A trilogy of four books. That is something... Anyone who knows something underestimates how much of it is common knowledge, which is a very easy setup for, oh, this thing, what do you mean that thing? Oh, here, I'll explain it to you. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the first half of that is like what's going on in the lock tomb, except nobody ever says here, I'll explain it to you. Which is also an effective strategy, I think. Yes. A, a good amount of exposition and world building communication happens, but um, there's not a lot of being told anything. <laughs> The, the danger with that strategy, of course, is that you, you have to rely on your audience's reading comprehension. Which is dicey. Ah, my favorite thing. For Chainsaw, <laughs> Chainsaw Man readers, the most feared devil of all is the reading comprehension devil. 
that makes you forget aspects and world building and events and things that were said and then to go on to Reddit and post something incorrectly and have someone go, oh, you've been hit by the reading comprehension devil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that is definitely a downside to that. And that is overall, I would say, a weakness within the locked tomb is it's just kind of reading comprehension required, batteries not included. I mean, it depends on what you're going for, I think, because that's clearly what Mira is going for. Oh, it that's is what, absolutely. That's what she wants to happen, but that might not be yes. what you want to happen. <laughs> yes, that is... <laughs> yes. If I could pose a question, um, what type of exposition styles is there that you guys uh, like and dislike? I'm not talking about, like, specific examples yet. More like just like ways to do it that you're like, yeah, that's good, or mm, I don't like that way of doing it. Is there any specific like way? Um, yeah, I I am actually kind of a fan of the way we were just talking about where we were just kind of sprinkles it in because it gets me to like dig into the work and look for stuff, and I enjoy doing that. It's a, it's like a little treasure hunt, <laughs> where the reward at the end of the day is information. Mike gets the map out, drawing lines. <laughs> I think something very interesting to do is, I'm not sure how to describe it. There's definitely a term for it, but like institutional exposition, where you can infer things about the way the world works from the way things are. That's a bad way to describe it, but I think in Stormlight Archives, it takes ages before anyone actually describes what a high storm is, as I recall. But everyone mentions, oh yeah, life is... We have to get the crops in before the giant storm. We have to get to the storm shelter to ride out the giant storm. Those are obviously very on-the-nose examples, but you get a sense that there's this big thing that the world is shaped by and that's just part of the way things are and you can see that in every little detail and i think that's an effective that's an interesting way to convey things about the world because you don't have to describe it or you don't have to until later if you want to but you can still see the shape that that as that that facet of the world leaves this might not be what you guys were going for. Was this supposed to be like writing styles? <laughs> I'm fine with it. I enjoy it. I mean, yeah, no, I, I, think that's, <laughs> I think that's what the question was asking for. <laughs> yeah. Now, I am admittedly an engineer. Uh, <laughs> and so I can enjoy this, but... And this is not everyone's favorite thing, but I do enjoy sometimes when a book in a sci-fi setting just gets into the science of it. I think... That's definitely more common in sci-fi, I think, because, I mean, you know your audience. Yeah, you know what they're here for. That is in a very specific sub- sub-genre of sci-fi, yeah. I cannot handle that. Oh, yeah, I, was, <laughs> I was reading a book recently where there was just a three-page aside about how FTL travel worked in the middle of a battle and how it was relevant. And there's a place for that. <laughs> if you know your readers, you can get away with it. Maybe it shouldn't be your first resort, though. Yes, and I would say also, 
if you're going to pull something like that, don't start your book with it. Oh, absolutely not. Because once they're invested in the characters in the world, then you can pull stuff like that. But you have to wait for them to be invested first, so that part of exposition has to come after learning who everyone is and figuring out which bastards you should hate. <laughs> yes, in context, this was... The main character has just figured out what the enemy's plan is and is ordering a spaceship into action. And it's like, wait, what's their plan? Oh, well, they're taking advantage of this aspect of the world building that I'm going to explain to you now. It has to be in context. Yeah. So, uh, Maya, just a quick question I wanted to ask you. Uh, uh -oh. Are you f sort of familiar or knowledgeable on... Like, uh, the sort of modern popular, uh, popularization of who sort of is, yeah, given the award of being, you were the first one to do this in modern literary writing. Um, I'm loosely familiar with the tendency of people to do such things, but... Uh, so in uh modern literary, anyone else? Wait, wait, so are you asking us to pick what? <laughs> I'm asking, do you know who popularized it or used it first in modern literal, uh, literacy? Oh, you mean like the, the setup in the story of... As you know, this is the first person to etc. Yeah. Oh, no, is that like in the real world, who oh. wrote it? <laughs> who was the person who used exposition? In modern literacy first. <laughs> oh. Mm. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I know the plot structure kind of breakdown I've been talking about was designed by Kurt Vonnegut, but... So, uh... At least it was luxury This is, uh, what I'm describing is indirect in exposition, which was, uh, first, uh, used in modern literacy by Rudyard Kipling to describe, uh, like, stories of faraway lands. Like, in The Jungle Book, when he describes India... Uh, he had a problem uh, with uh, people, you know, Europeans, Americans, uh, who couldn't understand what India was like. It's a foreign concept. It's alien what, you know, India is like. So he used exposition to describe uh, how India was like in, so that the readers could understand, oh, India's not like Britain. It's not like America. It's not like Germany. And when they did read it, it gave them an idea, and that's where, that's where he used exposition. Huh, I did not know that. Well, it's a thing of the past, like, we've all grown up understanding that's how India is. We know what India is kind of like. But you go back to, you know, someone who, you know, Kipling was around in the late, you know, the late 1800s to the early uh, 1900s. When you think about someone in there, how would someone know what India is like in that time period? They would have to go there. And a lot of people can't really go to India <laughs> in that time frame. I think, a, I think a comparable example would be like expositioning something on the dark side of the moon or in the depths of the Mar uh, Marianas Trench. Mm. Because we can't just go there. I mean, sure, we can like see some pictures sometimes, although I don't think we have pictures on the dark side. 
of the moon. Yeah, we do. Pictures of it. Pictures from it. No. <laughs> I went name Mario Odyssey. <laughs> True. Okay, so I'd like to 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 shout out as as a fan of science fiction, the in medias res style of exposition. I I do like that. And um I've recently started reading an original work on AO3 called Amber Skies by the Caretaker, which is a sort of um cyberpunk far future setting. I think if you like cyberpunk and you like the locked tomb you'll probably like this because it kind of starts out the same way that the locked tomb does um hold up hold up hold up i'm searching it on ao3 right now i can send you a link that would be convenient because my first search results didn't give me anything yeah just give me a second here all right that is sitting next to the unholy amount of star wars fan fiction i've been reading lately so, does that bring your tab digits up to four yet? Um, I've been at that number for quite some time. Uh, <laughs> pain. <laughs> Anyways. So, yeah, that's that, that style of exposition that seems to be common in science fiction, where you start in the middle of a scene and you just sort of immediately slap your audience in the face with the how different that world is from what you're familiar with the uh we're not in kansas anymore yeah i think that's probably kind of the style that i tend to favor as a writer because it's easy it is uh and i am pretty lazy <laughs> Lazy or efficient? The classic debate. Well, I suppose if that covers all of the examples we want to cite. All right, let's uh, talk about things we do and don't like in exposition, which, I mean, we kind of did a little bit of. Uh, yeah. Things we dislike in particular. I mean, nonsensical exposition is... I know it's more writing... Uh, but, you know, when you just say stuff that is dumb. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I'll always be like, hmm. Also, stuff in adaptations, whenever you see that they <laughs> do exposition and then completely get it wrong when they're adapting it. <laughs> just like, why? <laughs> I take it this is about Game of Thrones again. It's always about Game of Thrones. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, those are mostly my main ones. I besides for doing, like, amateurish stuff, I can't really think. Like, if you want to do, like, two episodes of your, like, TV show and have that be about it, you know, typically, I think that's fine. You know, long flash story exposition, flashbacks, you know. If you want to do stuff like that, that's fine. But, yeah, I can't really think... Uh, probably just two characters having a, a long conversation without uh, stuff happening. You know, I think there are many interesting ways. I think two people sitting in a room together just talking isn't always the best way to exercise. Yeah, the this is this is something that the Star Wars prequels, uh, a, a major sin in in those movies is among many. Among many, but I 
this is this is probably one of the worst structural sins of the movie is of the movies the prequels is that there's a lot of stuff that's delivered by two characters sitting in a room talking or walking slowly through a CGI space and it's just shot reverse shot and it's not good for the pacing. No, I can imagine that would be disastrous for pacing. It's it's been a hot minute since I saw the prequels, so kind of just offer it operating off of cultural knowledge. Yeah, I'm probably a lot more forgiving of eh, world building techniques it, or not world building exposition delivery in writing versus in in physical writing like books versus other media because I'm a fast reader. And so if I'm bored, well, good news, I'm out of this section in like two seconds. Yeah, because I'm, I'm trying to think of shows that have it. I mean, hitting me with a lot of exposition right up front is boring. I often don't care quite so much about the world as I do the people in it. That's had a lot of impact on me as a fanfiction writer, because I go, okay, here are the characters, gimme. I yank them out of the world I found them in, and I place them in new situations, because I think it would be fun. So... While I can enjoy a good technical diatribe, if I'm seeing that in, like, the first three chapters, I'm not super enthused. Because it's like, okay, but I don't care about this. Steam, do you have any input? I don't know. I mean, I like... I like elaborate worlds. You know this. You recommended me, Sanderson. Yes. Well, less recommended and more handed you, like, ten books and said read. Yes. Um, sorry, what was the original question again? <laughs> uh, <laughs> things you do and don't like in... Things, like, about an end exposition that you do and don't like. I don't know, I have few particular dislikes here. I think if there are things that are going to be critical to the plot, like, mechanically, that needs to be up front. That needs to be explained. If you don't explain to the reader what the rules are in a area where those rules are relevant, I think it's easy to lose them. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's all I got. Yeah, I need to find a way to rework these sections so they're a little easier to think of answers for, because the questions I usually ask are vague. Something I will say I'm not a huge fan of happening in exposition, although this is kind of incidental, is white man in the 90s syndrome. Elaborate. <laughs> um, so when I was a kid, I read, among other things, uh, several books by Brandon Mull. He's probably best known for the Fablehaven series, or maybe his most recent Five Kingdoms books. I I am not familiar with any of those. Yeah, you, you were probably a bit old to be reading that um, age probably. group when those books were coming out. But 
especially now he does course correct in the Fablehaven books on this, but in the first two, there's a couple cases of the author is very clearly a white man speaking and writing from a position of some degree of privilege, and that's it can get a little icky. Um, in particular, the thing that bothered me was Europeans acquiring a plot of land from Native Americans and that being a good thing. The Europeans did a lot of fucked up shit to the Native Americans. Yes. And he does correct some about that with a later book. I think it's book three, maybe book four. But it's still icky. And folks, when you're writing, think a little bit. I would genuinely recommend everyone run their stuff by a sensitivity reader, because you don't know what you don't know. And privilege can blind us to a lot of things. Yeah, That is actually probably the fastest way to make me check out of a book, is have some ickier stuff happen like that. Uh, the only reason I didn't check out on reading the series again recently was I'd already read it, uh, and so I kind of already had investment in it. And I mean, the, and that's just like a couple of sentences in a wider book. An advice we have for writing exposition before we start to wrap up here for the day, maybe any specific styles we have advice for, I feel like the advice I would give is when you are approaching exposition that you don't always have to make it a smart way <laughs> because the problem is then you're constantly thinking how is a new way to give the exposition? What's the new fun way, the way that's never been done before? Try that maybe once in in your story. You know, once every 50 chapters maybe. Uh, but don't try to do it over and over because you're going to realize, you know, every, how many, how many other cha uh, chapters that it's very difficult to come up with new ideas. <laughs> it is very difficult. Uh, so focus on getting the basics down, the ways of, you know, getting that information out effectively, but in an entertaining way. That's what you got to focus on. Yeah, I'll kind of... Along the same line as that, don't reinvent the fucking wheel. Um, if someone else has done a style of exposition that you're like, yo, that's neat, do that. Look for methods of delivering exposition that you enjoy. Because they're out there. And if somebody... And if you liked it, Statistically speaking, someone else is going to like it. Um, that is, I think, that was a very poignant point to bring up, Dylan, is don't waste your time trying to come up with new stuff. Uh, yeah, I would always say that you don't want to waste time thinking about stuff that ultimately, while cool, and people might go, cool, it doesn't enhance the work enough to be worth it. You know, if you're taking, you know, 
30 minutes trying to think of what would be a cool way to give the exposition, you could have wrote out the exposition in that time and, you know, checked it, made sure everything was good, and written a bunch more. <laughs> one one thing I'd like to say there is, as, as it relates to your world building, you don't have to show all of your work. You don't need to include the history of every tree branch in your work. As much as you might want to, take a lesson from Tolkien there. Don't write a book that reads like the Bible. Yes, because I won't finish that book. I didn't finish the Bible either. Stand anything for you? Maybe stuff specific with genres you're more familiar with? I can't say I really have anything to add here. I think perhaps the advice that I would like to share is... If you're getting bored with it writing it, you might want to try a different tack, because your readers are probably also going to be bored. It is sometimes pretty clear when a writer is having fun. Alrighty. <laughs> are we moving on to our mailbag? I believe it is time to check what we have in the mail. And what we have in the mail is nothing. So just a reminder, if anyone's out there listening... If you have something that you want to tell us, something that you would uh, like us to share on the show, um, or just uh, work that you want us to read, uh, you can email it to uh, fanfictapes at gmail.com. Uh, you can also reach out to us on Twitter. Maya, what's our Twitter? Our Twitter account is, and I pulled this up, so I'm looking at it as I say it, and I get it right this time, at fanfictiontapes. We usually try to post stuff there, although... I haven't posted in a few weeks. Oops. <laughs> Maya! <laughs> I'll, I'll get it set up tonight. It will be done. So yeah, add us on Twitter or uh, tweet with the hashtag TheFanFictionTapes. Uh, we should see that. At least until Twitter goes down in flames later this month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's... That's a problem for later. <laughs> That is a problem for future us. And speaking of problems, Maya, can we tell them about our prompt this week? No. <laughs> <laughs> I guess our prompt for this week is write a sort short segment of exposition about a world you're familiar with, whether that's an original world or something someone else has written that you just think is neat. But keep the exposition to two paragraphs. Bit of a prompt and a challenge, if you will. All right. Well, Steve, do you have any uh, more works to produce since the last episode? Or promote? No. <laughs> I do not. Believe it or not. Shocking. All right. Well, uh, I am and have been Maya, and I was joined by... You were joined by Dylan. Eat. And I am Ian. Until next time, bye.